you uh, have a copy of God's Word, would you open it with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which will be our sermon text this morning in our Advent series, He Came and He's Coming Again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'll start reading from verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we sing a song about the second coming of Christ that includes the lines, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, describes the response of those who are unprepared for the second coming of Christ, the unrepentant on whom God's judgment falls, deeply wailing. And when I have selected that hymn for our worship service, I have wondered sometimes, how do people feel about singing those lines? Seems strange. Our services, our song texts are normally celebrative, happy. And here we are singing about people deeply wailing. What's with that? In fact, there have been occasions when I chose that hymn, but we skipped that stanza. But I think that the apostles would say that those lyrics are appropriate. We read in the last book of the Bible by the apostle John about the people of God celebrating the victory of God, the vindication of his justice, even as the unrepentant are deeply wailing, who will hide us from the wrath of the Lamb? And the apostle Paul speaks in this morning's sermon text about the sober, serious, dreadful side of the return of the king. So I think he too would approve of the people of God, at least occasionally, singing those kind of lyrics. 
See if you don't agree as we take a closer look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Please open your Bibles once again to this chapter that Drew read as we near the end of our series on the second advent of our Lord. Paul begins this letter with a typical greeting in verses 1 and 2, continues with a fairly typical thanksgiving for his readers in verses 3 and 4, although what is not typical of Paul's epistles is one of the reasons for which he's thankful. He is thankful that they are enduring in the face of trouble. Among God's people, verse 4, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. If you read about Paul's missionary trip to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, you read that he was ministering there for a few weeks with some success, but that success generated jealousy on the part of the local synagogue and some of the pagans living in Thessalonica, and troublemakers stirred up a mob, and there was a riot opposing this new gospel message. And Paul actually had to skip town in the middle of the night, went to Berea, and began a ministry there, but the troublemakers in Thessalonica pursued him even to the new city and caused trouble for him there. And now Paul is wondering, how are his converts in Thessalonica faring under continuing persecution? Timothy has come back with a good report that they're hanging in there despite opposition, they're remaining faithful to Jesus, growing in their love, growing in their faith. You realize, of course, that persecution did not stop with the conclusion of the first century. Down through the years, the people of God have again and again experienced opposition, turmoil, death, imprisonment, confiscation of their property. Paul had written elsewhere, through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. Our Lord Jesus, in his closing comments to his apostles in John's gospel, said, in this world you will have trouble, and it has proven so. Out of countless examples I could give you, consider this one. Ima was a Christian living in Congo. He and his um, immediate family witnessed terrible atrocities against Christians, including some in his extended family and some of his friends. And finally, he and his wife and three daughters left on foot to get out of Congo, arrived, I think it was weeks later, in Uganda, where they arrived as refugees possessing nothing. For months, they lived together in one room, without electricity, without water, enough money to buy the family one meal every other day. And he said to a British missionary, weeping, you know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. I know that I will not get justice in this world, and I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. 
Now, out of many possibilities, I chose that example of persecution because of what follows. Look with me at verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. All this, that is, their endurance in the face of persecution, is evidence that God's judgment is right. God has judged. These are, in fact, my people. (laughs) They have proven themselves to be kingdom people through their endurance and their allegiance to Jesus despite what it cost them. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God saw how they were suffering for their commitment to his son. Their perseverance demonstrated that he was right about them. They were the real deal, kingdom people. And that their persecutors must be called to account. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Do you hear that as good news? That God is just and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble his people? Does it strike you as good news that our Father will not ignore forever grave injustice, that he will not indefinitely tolerate the cruel bullying of his children? Here again, Ema, our Congolese brother, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God because I will never see justice in this world and I couldn't cope if I was never ever going to see justice done. And this is how the missionary comments on this conversation. He says to us, we in the West often recoil from God's justice for a very simple reason. We've hardly had to suffer injustice. But most people around the globe recognize that God's justice is praiseworthy. Of course, his mercy and redemption are even greater, but we need his perfect justice as well. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. We saw in last week's text that in the Bible, the day of the Lord will bring both judgment on the ungodly and relief for his people. It is both sober and serious and dreadful for some, and it is a great day of rejoicing for others. And I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, we're asking for something very sober and serious. Oh, to be sure, we are asking for all of the blessings of the reign of God on the earth, peace, prosperity, Harmony, love, triumphing. But that prayer also at the same time asks that God will root out the cancers of social and political and economic injustice. When will he do that? When will God vindicate his justice? Well, Back up again, verse 6, he's just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Infant holy, infant lowly, all meanly wrapped in swathing bands, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, sleep in heavenly peace, the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. We sang a few minutes ago, though an infant now we view him, he will share his father's throne. Gather all the nations to him, every knee shall then bow down. His first advent was known to only a few. His second advent, every eye will see him. At his first advent, he was honored by a few magi. At his second advent, every knee will bow. At his first advent, his glory was hidden. At his second advent, his glory will be revealed. He came in weakness. He will come in power. He came as a baby. He will come as a warrior. He came in tenderness. He will come in blazing fire. He came to die for sinners. He will come to destroy sinners. He came with an angel choir. He will come with an angel army. Revelation 19 pictures this. The prince of heaven riding on a white horse. His garments stained with blood. And the armies of heaven following him. And the voice cries out with justice. He will judge and make war. He came. He's coming again. That's our series theme this Advent season. What a difference though between the two comings. But both are good news. The second advent will be dreadful for some, but it will be a glad day for the beleaguered people of God. Text goes on in verse 8 to say that he, God, will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He will punish. The word in Paul's Greek is related to the word for righteousness and justice. We need to know for sure that God never acts out of vindictiveness or irritation. He always acts with justice. So we can have absolute confidence that he will never punish anybody for something that they didn't do wrong and that his punishment will never be disproportionate to the offense. We have confidence in the absolute justice of God. It says he'll punish those who do not know God. In Romans, Paul writes that there is no excuse for not knowing God. That creation and conscience tell every person that there is a God. And that knowledge has to be deliberately, intentionally suppressed. Those who suppress it will be held accountable. And the text says that he will 
punish those who do not obey the gospel. The gospel is not only invitation, it is also imperative. There is a gift to receive and there is a command to obey. Accept pardon and bow the knee to the one who is both Savior and Lord. Well, what will this just punishment of God be like? Read verse 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now some interpreters take that word destruction to mean that the ungodly will go out of existence, that Paul is talking about annihilation. But that doesn't square with other biblical texts indicating conscious punishment. The shorthand version is hell. Now think of it, although it's awful to think of it. Shut out forever from the source of all love and joy and beauty and meaning and hope. Now even if we agree that God must take sin seriously, even though we, we realize that it's a good thing that God judges sin, we may wonder about the everlastingness of God's punishment. We may stumble over eternal punishment. There's no way. Is my mic on? I'm, when I step over here, can you hear me all right? All right, some, something in my ear is not right. I have mine on. Let's try it again. All right, yeah, please. There's no way I can make this doctrine palatable. But neither is there any way that we can eliminate it from the Bible. The New Testament uses the word that is translated eternal or everlasting 40-some times to talk about heaven being everlasting. It's a stretch to think that when the writers turn to talking about punishment, they mean something other than what they meant when they used the same word to talk about heaven. It's, it's everlasting, never-ending. And maybe this analogy will help a little bit. Suppose that a high school student punches another student in the face. Well, that student is given a detention. But suppose during detention, the boy punches the teacher. Well, then what happens? The kid gets suspended from school. Suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a policeman in the face. Then what happens? He ends up in jail. And suppose that some years later, he's waiting in a crowd to see the President of the United States, and as the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President. What happens then? The Secret Service shoots him. It's the same offense each time, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it's committed. What comes from sinning against God? Everlasting destruction. 
The closing ceremonies of the 2012 London Olympics featured a children's choir singing John Lennon's song, Imagine. It was a huge image of Lennon projected on the screen behind the choir, almost as if the whole stadium was supposed to bow down and worship. And we're reminded in the lyrics of that song that we're, we're supposed to imagine a world in which there's no heaven and no hell. This life is all there is to worry about. Well, an article in Christianity Today says that it's not only unbelievers who think that way sometimes. No heaven, no hell, no certainly no eternal hell. Um, but Christians sometimes seem to think that. We'll talk a lot about justice, but not necessarily about judgment. And the article gives a number of reasons why that may be the case. One is we, we feel that the concept of hell, eternal judgment, is offensive to the unbelieving world, and if we can just remove that obstacle and the offense of eternal judgment, we can perhaps make Christianity more palatable to our culture. That's, that's one reason. Another that this article suggests is that we feel guilty about our failure to evangelize. If we have unsaved friends and family members and hell is real, we ought to feel an urgent obligation to share the gospel with them. And if we've died, the thought of somebody missing out on heaven is just too difficult to accept. And another possible reason is one mentioned earlier, that we in the West have been shielded for the atrocities that call for judgment. If we had experienced the Holocaust or Cambodia's killing fields, Auschwitz, the gulags, the Rwandan genocide, we might, we might hear judgment as good news. And then, interestingly, this article suggested another reason why maybe we downplay the whole subject of judgment. If we admit that judgment is necessary, we open the door to our own sins being addressed. And the net of judgment may be wide enough to catch us, too. Well, that's a little frightening to consider. Verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And this includes you, harassed Thessalonian believers, because you believed our testimony to you. Again, two aspects to the second advent. Wonderful, glorious hope of which we have sung today. And sober realization that when the king comes, it will spell disaster for those who are unprepared. And both those aspects of the day of the Lord are captured in the hymn that I quoted from briefly at the beginning of this sermon. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints 
attending, swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia. God appears on earth to reign. Every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Pray with me, won't you, about this? And before I address my words to God, may I address a few to you. And especially to any who have not yet received God's offer of pardon and bowed the knee to his appointed Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, Will you take to heart the sobering and, yes, even offensive words of this text and acknowledge as Lord the one who was willing to come at Christmas and lay down his life for you, but who also sit on the throne one day judging all of us. Do take this personally. If you've already done so, if you are one of the people of God to whom the Apostle Paul writes this, then I will pray for you using his words from the last couple of verses in this chapter. I pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. I pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.